this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Architecture, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Nichelle De Silva, and I am delighted to be joined by Daniel A. Barber, who is an Associate Professor of Architecture at the University of Pennsylvania Weizmann School of Design. We'll be talking about his book, Modern Architecture and Climate, Design Before Air Conditioning, published by Princeton University Press in 2020. Welcome, Daniel, and thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. Could you begin by telling us a bit about yourself and your background, particularly how you came to your longstanding research interests around climate and architecture? Sure. Yeah. No, it's a uh, uh, it's a great question, and it's a nice nice way to kind of uh, start it off. Um, yeah, I, I sort of came to um, the discussion of architecture from the direction uh, from environmentalism, if you will. I mean, from a kind of uh, which is to say, not uh, specifically. I wasn't trained as an architect. Um, I I grew up around architecture. My father is an architect, um, and I was in effect trained as an artist and also in. in History and theory. I was. I, I. My undergraduate program at the University of Washington was called the Comparative History of Ideas, and it was one of these sort of, you know, uh, develop your own field of study uh, sort of majors. And so there was a lot of uh, thought about the built environment and how it related to uh, social practices and the kind of you know the, the sort of interface between um, what we used to think of as nature, right, and and what we used to think of as culture. Um, so, so I kind of came to the question of architecture really from uh, from the ambition that this was a sort of space to uh, uh, sort of think about and, and and use to mediate and think through questions around uh, the environment and its changing relationship to social processes. And uh, you know, we could see how much we want to get into this sort of discussion, but you know, in, in a sense, was was uh, kind of surprised when I. Sort of came into the field in around 2000 at, at the where the discussion was, where architecture was kind of seeing itself in relationship to the environment, and and from that kind of shock and and uh, sort of some dismay, I just kind of dove into the archives in effect, and and started to root around and and find other sorts of you know kind of origins of architecture and environmentalism. So um, the first book that I wrote that was on solar houses. Uh, in the uh, mostly American context in the 1940s and 50s, uh, started to tell that story and to kind of interweave narratives of architecture and energy um, habits and practices, kind of ways of living in the territory. Uh, so sort of ways of territorial living, like ways of, ways of being in the environment, right? And it, you know, in, in, a, in a funny way, it's all very close to me. I mean, this book, as we'll get into, departs from some of that a bit. But I, you know, growing up in Colorado in the 1970s and 80s, there were solar houses everywhere, and my father, you know, was a, an architect of many things. I mean, he was he was very much there to be making a living, and did malls and casinos and houses and dentist offices and you know the gamut. But nonetheless, we were I was attuned to the kind of solar developments around us and the houses that we you know lived in and played in, uh, we're kind of aware of their natural environment, right? So, so in some ways, I'm, you know, writing about my own history when I'm writing these, these books. Um, yes, it does seem in some ways as though this book is a bit of a prequel to, well, prequel in some ways, but then flows very nicely into your second book. Um, 
in your in this current book, uh, I was really quite compelled by the way you describe uh, the building facade as a media device and the way in which um, the variability of the facade becomes a media event. And there's a lot going on in this in this very compelling claim. And I really want to unpack this idea that runs through your book uh, through a few questions in this first part of the interview. So I want to start with the facade itself. Uh, which, as you say, mediates between the interior of a building and the exterior environment, but also, as you point out, functions as an epochal marker. Uh, And that was really interesting to me because the term modern architecture is such a fraught one. Uh, And while concern with the formal is a relatively recent phenomenon, it seems to have become really perniciously pervasive in schools of architecture. And I really love that you resist this and you exist instead examine this relationship between architecture and climate and make that central to your book. Uh, And this sort of, you open this with your discussion of the glass facade in Le Corbusier's work in chapter one. Um, Could you talk about what what this means in terms of how you frame architecture and climate? What does this mean for how we understand not only Le Corbusier's work, but how we interpret modern architecture as a concept? Yeah, great. Thank you. I mean, such such a thoughtful question. I, I it's such it's so nice to um, you know, to have the book engaged at, at such a such a helpful level. Um, and 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 you know, it is really an important aspect of it. I mean, I think that um, uh, trying to sort of model and and understand how to, uh, in a sense, how how climate was a part of the discussion of modern strategies uh, in the 20s and 30s, right? And 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 you know, we the, the development of Le Corbusier is complex, and you know, uh, uh, certainly one easily kind of uh, steps into it relative to such a well-known figure. Um, but there's a there's a, a clear strain in the archive. I mean, a clear thread, a, a kind of river that one can see kind of flowing at, at, at wider and, and and thinner throughout his 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 work, especially before World War II. Um, uh, that focuses on climate, right, and that and that thinks about the building in relationship to climate on technical terms, uh, working with engineers, and uh, uh, you know, there's all there's an air conditioning side to this, and there's a kind of solar uh, uh, solar path, solar incidents, and bris soleil side to it, right? And he's he's which is to say, in part, that there's just a sort of general recognition that you know uh, the the management of the thermal interior was essential to. Le Corbusier's practice on sort of that, you know, in that basic way, but also to the imagination of the modern movement, right? And so, so what I do in the first part of the book and, you know, through Le Corbusier and kind of uh, starting with him and uh, taking it to uh, developments that are often seen to be in Le Corbusier's shadow in Brazil. And, and then one of the sort of points that I try to make, you know, over that span of the first few chapters is that really the kind of interesting work is happening in uh, these uh, other spaces and, and, you know, spaces that had been othered, in fact, in that that historical context and, and really sort of going from south to north and uh, knowledge moving in, in uh, uh, all sorts of directions, right, uh, rather than uh, a sort of unitary fashion. Uh, so, so there's, you know, there's a couple of things going on there, right? There's a sort of claim that says that modernism uh, relied on a climatic argument in a sense, right? And, and modern architecture as it imagined itself and argued for itself and, and attempted to build in various way, places around the world, especially um, uh, in the so-called tropical or, or uh, zones or the uh, areas of in the industrializing South, right, in the 40s and 50s, um, uh, that, that being able to, to make an argument for an ability to sort of modulate the thermal interior was an important way that architecture would be built in Brazil and uh, Nigeria, across India and many other places. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't, we're not going to list, make the, <laughs> there's no, there's no efficacy in, in sort of playing out the list, but there's at the same time, there's a clear concentration in, in Brazil and, and in West Africa and in, uh, indeed in, in the Indian subcontinent. So, so starting to sort of understand how essential climatic management, however misapprehended, I mean, however much some of these ideas didn't work or were sort of, you know, one thinks of much of the work of Le Corbusier in India and its sort of climatic misapprehensions. Um, but nonetheless, you know, the, the ambitions were there and the sort of argument was there. Um, so it's in part to say, right, that climate was an essential component of the development of the modern movement, right? That modernism was really conceived of in its material components of steel, glass, and concrete, and in its sort of, you know, sociocultural capacities for engagement and intervention into new spaces around the world, you know, be they 
colonial and neo-colonial, developmental, or you know other forms of kind of economic and, and uh, social practices that were you know obviously associated with these architectural ideas in their in their details and, and on those general terms. Um, but there's a real yeah, there's a clear sort of thread that says that the sort of positioning of of these practices relative to their conception of a thermal space was essential to their development, right? So so that's the kind of one basic premise that relative to architecture and climate that that they kind of are argued together. Um, I mean, I could go on to talk about the facade piece for a second, the kind of media and facade piece more specifically. Does that make sense to do? Yeah, just keep... Yes, yes. Okay. Okay. So 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 the the you know the other sort of important thread there that that you know that you also uh, open up um uh how how uh, media becomes this sort of I mean, media considered both in the sense of uh, uh sort of um uh, objects and diagrams and drawings and graphs and charts and you know photographs certainly architectural drawings of all sorts um, media become this sort of space of discourse, right? Uh, not only for an architectural set of ideas, but in, indeed um, architecture as a field, as a professional practice, be, is a sort of uh, first place or important place where um, uh, uh, media that's trying to describe the climate you know, starts to be circulated in. It, which is beyond, that's to say, sort of uh, those fields specifically concerned with climate, uh, beyond meteorology, right? I mean, associated fields, right? The, one of the uh, sort of early uh, in, uh, uh, attempts to kind of think about climate uh, outside of its specific field of analysis. And and so, so you know, media, you know, one of the sort of foundations of the book is is the premise that media is required, is necessary to understand climate, right? The climate is an abstract concept that, you know, you walk outside and experience the weather. Um, but uh, if you want to understand climate, you need media, you need a, a, you know, a sense of a range of time and space and what your, what your parameters are and, and how those parameters, how the, the climate shifts over time is something that has to, you know, sort of be mapped out and represented in order to be understood. Uh, and, and quite similarly, you know, in order to really understand architecture, right, we need media and drawings and, and uh, other, you know, familiar and unfamiliar forms of architectural representation. And it's that kind of intersection, right, where, where we see that um, this sort of question of, of architecture and media really plays out in the climatic context. This is proliferation, I mean, this wild proliferation of drawings. Uh, diagrams and sections and, you know, uh, uh, certainly uh, perspectives and other sorts of uh, illustrative images and uh, photographs, of course, circulating as well. But just this sort of wild proliferation of a specific kind of technical image of technical media. And I, I you know, I sort of work with Willem Flusser here in the introduction to sort of think through this question of the technical image and how it, you know, comes to to sort of offer certain modes of knowledge and, you know, the, this kind of notion that if we understand the diagram of the, the climatic condition in which a building sits, right? The sort of premise that will somehow encourage uh, a different mode of practice. And, and so thinking about the instrumental uh, or not components of the image as it's produced as well, it, as a sort of prelude to the, you know, uh, the continued proliferation of imagery uh, around architecture and climate, right? I mean, in, in the past decade, uh, of course, just a, another sort of um, flurry of activity in the media production uh, of, a, of a kind of architectural approach to climate, right? So really seeing, you know, images and ideas and practices and charts and intersections and media as the sort of place where architecture associates with other fields and shares knowledge and also as a place where it sort of produces, right, the built environment and obviously produces other types of knowledge as well, uh, that to, to, to just sort of see that as a place where the climate, a, a cultural approach to climate is kind of produced, right? The way that we associate as a, a specific society or a sort of global uh, uh, society as well to the climatic environment outside is, is, is in very, very much sort of mediated, right? Determined, interfaced, uh, affected by, sort of uh, rendered on our building facades, right? So the the mediatic approach to a building is is a way to kind of understand that facade is really sort of expressing a relationship, right? Expressing a, a form of interaction between um, social habits and, and global patterns of, of, of climatic, uh, uh, you know, uh, global global climatic patterns, right? So, um, so I look at the facade. I look at the facade section, and, and and you know, it's something of a polemic. It's something of a just sort of 
kind of diving in uh, as far as possible into the details to see how we can sort of then zoom out and kind of read something very specific about the world. But, you know, trying to look at that facade section and how it kind of starts to to become a dynamic, a very dynamic space. And the sections we're looking at are, you know, have multiple systems of shading and, uh, you know, some that are fixed, some that are movable, some that, you know, adjust at different times of the day and that really sort of script a form of interaction, right? And kind of uh, in, induce, you know, cultivate, uh, bring the, 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 the body and the, and the subject into a sort of interaction with their thermal environment, right? So it's, it's, there's another sort of argument there of, of kind of media and interfaces and kind of thinking about the, the relationship between, the, let's say, the physicality and the virtual of the thermal spaces we, we inhabit today and how we start to, in a sense, a, a history to, of how we've related to the climate of our interiors and its relationship to the exterior that tries to understand these varying dimensions of habits and practices and, and technologies and designs and other methods, right? Of course, media encompassing all of those uh, forms of knowledge. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and it's been really interesting to read some of the, uh, the, the, the ways in which some of your ideas that are developed in the book have also been um, extended into some of the editorial and other work you've done. You, you, you edited a series on Eflux called Accumulations that then takes this idea that, you know, you really need some kind of media to try and understand um, what, what climate is. Um, you know, like you say, you can experience the weather, but climate is, is sort of so abstract in some ways that you need this a kind of media to even kind of begin to comprehend what it is. Uh, and I really like the way you very, you know, over the course of the book, uh, take this idea of the facade section and think about it, um, not just, you know, the way it appears on the page, but also the way in which it becomes distributed. Um, and so I actually want to move on to the second part of the interview because I did have a, a few questions in this first part about the facade and on, on media mediation, but I feel like you've answered many of them in, in this response. So I actually want to move on to, um, you know, another thing that really runs through your book, which is the question of normativity, of setting standards, of universals. Um, and I, I really like how, you know, you use this Bernhard Siegert uh, quote to sort of you know, really emphasize that there's no such thing as the house. You know, we sort of imagine the sort of, you know, child's drawing, you know, four walls, two windows and, and a roof, but you really unsettle that. And, you know, you're sort of really taking seriously this idea that, you know, as, as Siegert says, there are only, uh, and I quote, uh, historically and culturally contingent cultural techniques of shielding oneself. Um, and so you you sort of look at how, you know, the cultural technique of the facade um, becomes deployed in, in service of, of climate control. Um, and then, I mean, you have some, some really great quotes. So I'm actually going to quote this other Camusier uh, quote as well. He says that, you know, um, you know, when he's talking about modern architecture, he says, teach your children that architecture is about sunlight on floors. Uh, and it's such an interesting quote because it's not just you know, the poetry of sunlight on floors, but, you know, the fact that it's prefaced with teach your children. Um, so it's not just about what he thinks architecture should be, but that there's this pedagogical imperative that others should also be taught this and it should be this sort of generational thing. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit, you know, you sort of talk about how these technical diagrams serve um, as an instrument of modernization. You talk about how architects become uh, roving experts for setting these norms uh, and the eventual export of a very specific American lifestyle uh, that that requires quite a lot of energy usage. Uh, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, how you see the pedagogical imperative of 
of, you know, as you say, this, this, this paradox between trying to make um, a mode of shelter that is infinitely adaptive, but also trying to set a normative condition for, uh, you know, these standards that people can live, live up to. Uh, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, this is, again, a great set of, of really um, fascinating points of, of connection. Um, let's see, uh, kind of thinking where to start. I mean, I, I think, uh, the, again, the sort of question of, of the house and maybe starting with with the Seegert quote. And, you know, part of what we start to realize, I mean, part of, part of what the book tries to, you know, the, the kind of thread that I'm sort of pulling out of, of these various stories uh, really is a, is a, is a means to understand again, the, the sort of the, the ways in which architecture can be framed as a sort of divisive climatic adaptability, right? That the facade in particular, and this sort of interface between you know, interior and exterior and sort of, again, social habits and sort of global climates, right? Um, that this is a sort of wildly variable um, uh, a set of operations and devices and materializations and sort of cultural practices, right? And so Seagert's really helpful in, in helping us to kind of, you know, think about it as a sort of set of cultural practices that can, uh, you know, kind of take on so many forms and that also is so expressive of, of sort of investments or, um, you know, um, uh, cultural sort of uh, uh, priorities and kind of uh, even kind of capacities and forms of knowledge and kind of what we're sort of able to do in a given moment by virtue of the kind of cultural techniques that were, uh, as as Seeger's term, that we're you know sort of managing and, and engaging with and to some extent kind of manipulating, right? So this is, so again, this sense of of not the house as as something that's and quite frankly in direct uh, uh, let's say uh, positioning. Uh, contrary to the work of you know the kind of Heideggerian threads that persist in some uh, mediatic and philosophical discussions, you know, to sort of resist this question of the kind of house dwelling kind of essential space uh, in any in any in any fashion, and really just kind of uh, document and record and understand and and sort of trace this this set of developments relative to the articulation of a certain type of shelter and a certain type of relationship uh, between again yeah the kind of uh, thermal interior, right, and the, and the global, the climatic exterior, how we can kind of manage and understand our thermal world, right? I mean, really the challenge of the book and the challenge of my, you know, sort of research in general, what I'm continuing to try to do is, you know, what what are the, how can we explain, this is, I'm sorry, also relative to the accumulation work and the kind of broader editorial practices. And I've also recently uh, started a, a website, a sort of web platform with some colleagues that's called Current. Uh, that's kind of a space for talking about architecture and environment. So, you know, look this up and, and, and come join us. But um, um, uh, to, to think about, you know, these sort of different uh, uh, practices as ways to, to really shift the way that we're imagining the production of our built environment today, right? And, and, and so, you know, there's a, there's a strong sort of scripting in the, in the book and its argument from the, you know, introduction and, uh, you know, it's various points of, of, of sort of um, framing and, 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 and concluding that tries to really, uh, you know, set this up as a challenge to practice. And I, and I, you know, something, another sort of issue that I, I struggle with or that we discuss in our, you know, sort of disciplinary context, the kind of methodological discourses of the relative sort of instrumentality of historical knowledge, but sort of not wanting to um, resist the fact that the material being put on the table is sort of exceedingly relevant to, to contemporary practice, but also wanting to understand that that relevance is not, you know, precisely operational, right? It's not to say architects need to kind of, well, uh, I mean, many do already deploy these techniques, but also just to sort of think about how these kind of systems and interfaces and concepts that emerge from this, um, you know, trace of um, the facade and its elaboration as a climatic device and this kind of sense of architecture, again, as a sort of um, uh, a condition of adaptability, right? As a sort of means of reimagining these um, socio-energetic uh, relationships, right? That gives us a kind of opportunity, I think, to think through uh, possibilities for the future in compelling ways. So, so right, so there's a, there's a hope that's, I mean, in a sense, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's even quite explicitly a sort of um, uh, uh, recognition of a of another kind of break, much as the one you know theorized and often criticized and sort of debunked relative to the the sort of moment of modernism, right? So to think of Le Corbusier's quote as you do, 
as you bring in um, and, and this question of teacher children, um, you know, that I think is, yeah, certainly pedagogical and also sort of speculative, right? That this is always about the kind of um, how things how, how things should be in the future. And, and, and you know, the future is the, the relationship of modernism to the future. And when we kind of bring climate change into that discussion, you know, it gets really complicated, right? Because the the futures that we imagined um, have been overwhelmed by the, you know, carbon that we've produced, basically, right? I mean, we have uh, foreclosed on many um, uh, 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 dreams and fantasies of kind of modernist progressivism, in part through the production of the heavily, uh, you know, mechanically acclimatized built built environment. So, so I think there's a really, you know, I mean, without getting getting too much into um, uh, uh, kind of for, uh, playing out again this this discourse through the Corbusier, because I want to jump on to another part of your question. But but I think that question of the future and, and pedagogy and speculation really gets sort of caught up in in, in a kind of uh, you know try, uh, attempt to reflect on how the kind of progressive principles embedded in the modern movement um, were reliant upon a, a petroculture and a kind of uh, a premise of. Um, you know, unmitigated oil uh, and energy use. I mean, I've written elsewhere about the extent to which uh, the Bauhaus Dessau building was, you know, a sort of experiment in excessive coal use, right? I mean, it just becomes the, uh, the Seagram's Tower in New York, just this kind of, how can we use as much energy as possible, right? Becomes the kind of project of modern architecture uh, in some in some sense. So, So how are we, you know, how are we seeing buildings again as these kind of, uh, you know practices and 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 uh, systems and technologies and assemblages and uh, objects and and that we're in, interacting with in the context of our kind of thermal being right i mean our, our carbon uh, output our our kind of energetic condition right is sort of expressed through the architectural facade uh, even today i mean of course you know part of the reason to make this argument about the heavily um, uh, shading device facade, right? The kind of uh, device of climatic adaptability that I, of course, have, have mentioned already and play out at great length, right? Uh, part of the reason to, to sort of clarify the dynamism of that uh, interactive facade system of the, the sort of early modern uh, discussions, and especially in Brazil, right? As I discuss in the first first part of the book, um, is, to, is to note that the facade section soon becomes that of a kind of, you know, curtain wall, basically a thin sheath of glass that is, is sort of, uh, 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 you know, kind of a sheath around the building that have, is more or less sealed, um, more or less uh, uh, requiring a strong set of internal conditioning mechanical systems that will provide heat and cooling and ventilation. So in effect, a sort of uh, arc of the book that describes how the kind of knowledge that began to be produced through these elaborations of a wide range of, you know, design and interventions and facade, uh, dynamic facade shading systems, and even different sorts of materials conditions and all sorts of architectural questions, right? Uh, if you will, I mean, in a sort of uh, capital A sort of way, um, uh, uh, as they were imagined, right, kind of endemic to the field, uh, right, rather than external to it, uh, that that discourse around architecture and climate as sort of part of what architecture is, at some point, well, at a precise point in 1959, right, becomes a discourse, you know, that sort of that, that sort of idea of the comfort zone and the kind of capacity, how we live in the thermal interior, gets subsumed by the logic of air conditioning, right? And the kind of regulatory system of uh, the universal standards of, of ASHRAE, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, but that in 59 becomes a sort of global entity and starts to advise and consult and kind of have as its project to internationalize, right? And sort of produce a global standard. And and so the, the second half of the book is, you, you know, as you sort of allude to, um, which is called the American acceleration, right, is a sort of argument that this model that emerges, again, initially a conceptual model of a thermal interior that is that emerges through media, through diagrams, through interactions uh, with other fields as, as, a, as a means to understand shading, to understand a non-mechanical approach. Um, is is subsumed into a mechanical set of approaches, right? And then is sort of attempted to be uh, spread around the world is a system of a kind of sealed office building, um, air-conditioned, heated, ventilated, uh, powered by fossil fuels, right? So this important kind of shift or, or, 
or arc or even kind of inversion almost of a, of a kind of approach that um, is rooted in a kind of design method strategy. And is you know, if you look through the book and the literally hundreds of images of these sort of diagrams and ideas about how to approach architecture and climate, um, uh, you know, the sort of design uh, design preoccupation becomes just kind of an, an engineering uh, consultant's fee, in effect, right? I mean, and, and from this period in the 50s and 60s and all of the sort of debates of late and post and neo-modernism, in effect, right, that have occurred since are are all sort of underwritten, so to speak, um, by, uh, uh, you know, just the assumption of air conditioning, right? The assumption of mechanical heating, the assumption of um, the engineers kind of figure that out once you produce your design. I mean, I'm speaking far too schematically, but that's the the general thread, and and so there's there's even a you know there's another kind of arc uh, that that plays out in 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 the second part of the book is is a sort of examination of how this question of air conditioning in particular um, really was also is also a sort of people conditioning right a sort of a setting up of a set of expectations and this goes to your directly to this question of the norm and the universal right and this kind of sense of um, how we how we begin to understand that part of the project of architectural modernity as it developed in relationship to air conditioning and as it sort of spread around the world as the office tower and and also the kind of suburban home and you know office park and mall and all sorts and airports etc many different uh, you know typologies and and building um, uh, ambitions um, uh, relies on air conditioning, right? And just sort of spreads, you know, spreads this kind of deep entrenched reliance on fossil fuels around the world at the same time. Right? So, so it's also just to flag our challenge, right? That our challenge is, is in changing our ways of designing, of course, right? But also our own sort of conditioning, right? That we need to um, expect <laughs> a, a different kind of thermal environment, right? As we move through the world. And certainly those of us you know, in the industrialized, overcapitalized, uh, over uh, emission of, uh, you know, endless carbon emissions north, um, you know, our, our job is to sort of reduce our comfort, right, and um, reduce our emissions and uh, kind of live at the, at the kind of edge of discomfort, I think, to kind of find a way to inhabit the world in, you know, different thermal terms. So there's a, there's a strong kind of imperative in the book that sets up a kind of project for thinking about, yeah, life after carbon, right? Um, which of course is uh, yeah, where I'm taking the research in, in more recent essays, et cetera. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I was actually very interested in the way you navigated between um, sort of individual architects and their relationship to various kinds of bureaucracy and the way in which that shaped their architecture in, in various ways. Um, and then in turn, thinking about you know, our own relationship to various bureaucratic or sort of other norm-performing institutions that sort of fade into the background in ways that we don't quite understand, that we don't really sort of fully uh, appreciate, I think, so that we think of things as being, you know, um, oh, this is the way they are, or this is the way they've always been. Uh, We've sort of, you know, um, acclimatized ourselves ourselves into this sort of into a way of living that as you really bring out in the book has you know it has a very short history um and that you know um what i really appreciate is the way you show in which this history is so contingent um and so um you know in in your in your response uh, you were talking about um you know this question of the relationship between uh, comfort and discomfort and uh, there's this really sort of striking thing you say in the book because you know you, your book has this sense of urgency, um, and and you you talk about how the more comfortable we are, the more at risk we are as a species, and this is something that you talk very much about uh, in the book. You also wrote this article for Log last year about you know um, about you know the importance in some ways of discomfort. I, I think I've seen some of you know you you've talked about this on Twitter. Like this is something that really you know, is, is very central to your work. Um, and especially, uh, sort of, you know, um, in light of the kind of, I think, racial reckoning that's been happening this year, I wondered if you could talk a little bit also about, you know, kind of going a little further, you, you touch on this in the book. Uh, but I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this question, you know, this relationship between, 
uh, comfort, the the you know the creation of comfort and racial inequity, um, and it because it felt like something that was particularly pertinent uh, to talk about right now, um, as you know, um, you know we think of comfort as an ideal uh, as humans, but you really you know undo that idea. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I wondered yeah. if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, that's that's fabulous, and I, I appreciate. I mean, again, such a great such a great question and sort of. Uh, engagement with the with the material um and and really happy to have the opportunity to to think that uh, think that through um uh, you know I, I think what i do in the book and and even also in the in the in the log article is as as you note is is you know try to think about uh comfort as a sort of um i mean in, in some sense as a sort of form of capital let's say right or a sort of operating uh, as a sort of parallel uh, uh set of uh, kind of aspirational and oppressive systems, as does capital, which is to say, producing inequity, right? And 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 so you know, so the the, the comfort becomes a kind of index of um, how how much you are uh, immersed in a sort of set of uh, uh, you know which kind of which which side of these uh, the set of oppressive structures that you are on, and 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 uh, which is to say that 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 um, you know comfort is an index in the sense of luxury, in the sense of you know in that sort of broad sense of of um, the the lack of sort of worrying about uh, inconsistency, right? I mean, but, I mean, when you think about you know the sort of ways that we often, I mean, and who am I speaking of when I say we, right? Of course, is is immediately on 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 the table. I mean, how do we how do we imagine the sort of space of the interior as a space that's sort of charged with with uh, the sort of economic and racial and and, and other sorts of social and environmental inequities, right? And in the same ways as the sort of uh, fence line communities and other uh, regions, you know, sort of realms of environmental justice research uh, that help us to understand the uh, often, ra- you know, quite explicitly racially and certainly economic uh, stratifications that determine sites of development and, and spaces of toxicity and, and uh, sort of, you know, where the where the pollution, if you will, goes right. And so, so really recognizing that that the sort of broad sense of comfort, right, it's not just kind of you know sixty eight degrees or seventy degrees in your house, right, but it's just this sort of uh, structural condition for a certain type of, uh, in effect, racialized modernity, right, that says kind of those of us uh, uh, that that can live in a certain type of acclimatized. Um, uh, sort of industrial produced acclimatized space that is a space of consistency, that is a space of productivity, that is a space of health and um, uh, uh, sort of management of, um, you know, economic systems. And I mean, you know, I, I, I reflected on this at great length over this summer with some colleagues. I'm, I'm not sure if this is the part of the, the Twitter discussion you're referring to, referring to but uh, uh, when it was very hot in Philadelphia and, you know, this sort of, oh, it's too hot. I have to turn on my air conditioning or, oh, it's too hot. I can't get any work done. And this sort of sense of like, right, so let's not get any work done, right? I mean, let's, you know, uh, is it, what is the, you know, how do we sort of construct a notion of, of sort of comfort and and a sort of sense even of sort of carbon reparations, right? That says that, you know, those of us in Philadelphia and New York City in the August summer maybe need to sweat and stop working so that others can uh, fill up the, well, we don't have any carbon budget left, but can, you know, so that we're at least not contributing, right? Those of us who already have such privilege, right? I mean, in, in effect, uh, obviously quite uh, stratified across the, the Northeast, for example, in a hot, humid summer, but nonetheless, uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, thinking very carefully about where we are um, um, uh, sort of uh, directing our emissions, if you will, where we are allowing emissions to occur and where we are resisting them. And, and certainly the sort of, um, you know, sealed white containers of upper class and, and middle class, uh, uh, largely white uh, life in the city and in the condos, et cetera, et cetera, in the office, uh, office buildings that relate to them are, are spaces of immense carbon inequity, right? Of the production of carbon inequity and, and the sort of extent to which capital accumulation also becomes the accumulation of the sort of capacity for carbon emissions and how you know. So, so we're you know, in, in effect what we're what we're looking at is a, a broad you know set of systemic disruptions that involves a kind of recognition of the racial injustices of 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 the centuries uh, uh, centuries long that we have to sort of reconcile across these uh, climatic injustices if you will or sort of uh, carbon extensions of these of social patterns right that have produced and, and intensified uh, these different forms of inequity um 
I mean, I think a lot about, you know, that certainly uh, acclimatization is, is a crucial aspect of contemporary life. I mean, when you think about hospitals in particular, when you think about uh, vaccines that require negative 94 degree freeze, freezers or where, I'm not sure if I have that number right, but, um, uh, uh, you know, there's certainly many reasons to sharply acclimatize spaces for public health and, and individual well-being. Um, social cohesion, et cetera. I mean, museum archives, right? I mean, do we, I mean, we're, you know, there are valuable spaces that require acclimatization. Uh, you know, the, the single family home, the office building is maybe not that space. This classroom even is maybe not that space, right? Where we can sort of uh, operate differently in terms of our relationship to carbon, our relationship to comfort, um, and, you know, that intersection that says, you know, and, and of course this, I mean, we could play this out, this, uh, uh, transforms dramatically in the pandemic uh, age, shall we say, or, or, or almost post-pandemic age, if that's in fact where we are. But uh, which is to say, you know, schools and ventilation and homes and, and air conditioning systems and the kind of relationship of viral contagion to HVAC is, is something else that comes into the equation. Um, and, and, and again, in wildly inequitable ways, right? And which is the, the sort of uh, spaces of work of um, uh, you know many of those uh, in uh, the BIPOC community who have been affected by uh, COVID have often been poorly acclimatized or kind of ineffectively acclimatized, right, relative to the knowledge we have about how the virus moves uh, moves in interior, uh, in interior, in thermal interiors, right. So, so, so many challenges that emerge out of just sort of understanding this kind of intersection of you know. Uh, you know, air conditioning as a source of life and health and that we can't avoid, right? But to be so sort of try to find a way to be so precise about how we kind of spend that carbon budget, right? Um, uh, and, the, and the inequities that we can heal through that process rather than increase and intensify. Right? I mean, I speak somewhat uncomfortably because it's, I don't know that it's my place, but I, you know, I think about a sort of sense of carbon or climate reparations, right, on a sort of global scale, right, that those of us who have benefited and, and built our lives around the assumption of a sort of carbon profligacy need to just stop, right, and, and, and you know, insofar as we can uh, burn any carbon and emit any, you know, have any emissions, like that should be kind of concentrated in places that, uh, you know, thoughtfully allows others to have opportunities for fulfilling their lives, right, rather than you know, making me less cold so I don't have to put on a sweater or, you know, making, you know, sort of minimal adjustments to my own physical and, and, and physiological comfort that I can easily overcome in other fashion or through suffering, frankly, through being uncomfortable, right? It's fine with me. I'll be somewhat uncomfortable, right? And what is that limit and how is it designed and how is it imagined and how does, you know, this become a sort of vision of a post-carbon future in which comfort, again, is this kind of index, right? Is this kind of space of politics, right? Is this uh, space of negotiation uh, as we imagine these, these futures and build them? Um, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, and you know, there's something really sort of urgent that 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 goes to that sort of runs through your whole book. You know, in your kind of um, discussion of acclimatization, um, not just of um, an interior environment, but also of humans themselves. But I think there's something in your text that that I really hold on to in that. You know, um, in your final chapter, you talk about the the relationship between air conditioning and hu and and human conditioning, uh, and there's a really nice play on words here because it's not just as you say about you know conditioning as a as a form of creating comfort, but also conditioning or acclimatizing as a form of becoming adept, um, and that's something that I really hold on to as I you know read through this book and think about you know oh, this is where we are and it, and it is uh, we're in a really dire situation, but I think you. Put a lot of thought into your book in 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 thinking about um, uh, not only bringing us words of gloom and doom, but also thinking about you know charting different futures. Yeah, yeah. And there's something well, I really like about. Oh, uh, continue. Uh, go ahead. I, I was just going to say. I mean, precisely on the terms that you just described. I mean that you know, and 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 a thread that I you know maybe didn't quite pick up on quite quite as much as I could have a moment ago in in terms of. The question of the norm and the universal, right? Which I mean, it's kind of a you know is a specter over much of what we've just been talking about. But uh, relative to this question of ad ad adeptness and adaptability, and and you know, kind of how we kind of imagine 
our future world, right? I mean, I, I think this, this, you know, it, it, which is in part to say that it, part of what's going on is in doing this research, I find that I'm learning from these practitioners in the 40s, 50s, and 60s how to kind of imagine a, a, an adaptable approach to, you know, kind of architecture as a set of social systems, right? Um, and, and that becomes very tantalizing. So there's a kind of sense, a certain amount of optimism there, right? But one that is often crushed. I mean, it's kind of crushed every day you know, in, in terms of, the, you know, the daily practice of being an architectural professor or an architecture professor and involved in architectural pedagogy that, um, you know, has its uh, high points and low points, let's say, relative to engagement with climate. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it, um, it, yeah, and I it, think one thing you really do. Please. Oh, sorry. Um, I, I cut you off again. No, but I thought it was really interesting the way you uh, kind of recuperate this sort of, you know, this what has been seen as a kind of countercultural or marginal idea of small being beautiful, or sort of, you know, um, uh, the ways in which sort of a smaller footprint seems to be sort of marginal to. Um, you know, what what we think of as mainstream architectural discourse and you say, no, 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 actually let me sort of relook at some of the uh the um I guess, you know, people like Le Corbusier, who, you know, is this like sort of standard figure we look at in modern architecture, instead of saying, you know, there's a, there are different ways to look at uh this architecture that we've all been uh be- that we've all become really familiar with over time. And I also just want to draw attention to this other thing you do in the text um there's this little you know the way you end each chapter uh there's a really interesting sort of you know you sort of end it with a little coda or you know summary or you know almost coming out of the text a little bit to talk to the reader uh and and i wondered if you could talk a little bit about your authorial decision to to include those little notes almost at the end where you sort of almost come out of the text to speak in a very sort of personal way to the reader. No, and it's funny. I mean, yeah, and I, 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 and I think that in some ways it's a kind of uh, attempt to recognize the, uh, the limitations of, of a given chapter, right? Which is to say that, you know, this is kind of what I was able to discuss <laughs> coherently in the space, you know, allowed. And, and yet it's so much more, there's so much more to say, right? And, and I think a lot of those codas are really, a combination of sort of just reflecting on, um, uh, you know, pulling in some threads and reflecting on the kind of connections that the, you know, for example, the the Neutra, uh, uh, the discussion of Neutra and, and the discussion of, of the kind of American embassy building project and how that sort of expands out into a broader sort of uh, global uh, interest in tropical, tropical architecture that, of course, has its own uh, discourse and, and kind of parameters and that has been written about at great length by many fabulous uh, researchers and scholars and colleagues, right? And and so, you know, wanting to sort of point to that work and sort of be aware of the limitations of, you know, this, uh, keeping this kind of thread coherent that, that, that allows us to have a have a story, but that also, you know, necessarily leaves out too much, too much information. Uh, but that also, you know, again, always often kind of looks to the consequences, right? I mean, can, you know, how, how do we understand how the imaging practices that, you know, that I discuss in the fifth chapter of Victor and Aladar Ogiai, these you know diagrams and methodological drawings, and, um, uh, and the kind of which is to say, not only the kind of the Corbusiers and the architects we know, but the sort of uh, more kind of niche subjects, the kind of you know, individuals who for whom this was kind of their conceptual realm, their kind of methodological world of of thinking through climate and architecture. Um, uh, yeah, to really you know kind of understand their uh, their practices and, and, and their approaches. Um, um, there was something I'm, I'm losing one yeah, part um, of the question. Sorry, there was something else I was going to bring in there, but um, oh, 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 right. Oh, the, the, uh, no, I was just talking about the sort of uh, just talking about the end of, of the chapters, and just you know, not just the the content that you uh, bring into the chapter, but your um, uh, not just method methodology also, but your way of writing um, was something that I was really interested in, especially with those you know the little notes that you included at yeah, the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it, there's, there's, there's I, I think there's another way to look at them that, I mean, I, I feel like they're also sort of um, uh, possible dissertation projects. <laughs> I, mean, kind of, I mean, I kind of, I feel like at the end of each chapter, I'm like, or you could go look at this, right? Or you could open up this archive. And, and you know, part of the goal of the book and, and, and certainly of the first book as well is, is just to kind of open this box onto architecture and environment. And again, not, I'm not trying to be too, too sort of, 
boosterish, but this website current that we've just put together that's really trying to kind of uh, capture this kind of broad uh, uh, sort of river that's now flowing of, of interest at the intersection of architecture, history, and environment. Um, so, so I think there's also a kind of optimism, if you will, and I think it comes through in some of these codas, right? That's kind of, you know, there's lots of things we can look at to understand our relationship to the environment in different ways. Architecture is such a rich kind of, you know, vein to mine to, to overplay a, a different metaphor than the river. But, um, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of capacity here and there's a lot of interest. And so, you know, let's, let's go, right? And let's try to figure this out. So, so I think that's part of the optimism too, that you were, you know, this is not just the doom and gloom, right? But that, you know, we've got to keep moving forward. And even though we know that it's that kind of notion of progressivism that is, you know, destroyed us in the past. <laughs> Basically, you know, we have to sort of find a way to to work together to to imagine a, a new way of life. And and I and I think that so so I think in some ways those yeah those codas were maybe my kind of holding on to you know what could be there could be very depressing consequences emerging from this discussion. And and I should say there also are. But I think that yeah, there's maybe almost almost a kind of <laughs> necessity to reassert at every, you know, every possible, at every conclusion, right, that there's, there's hope to be found in these, in, in our, in the imagination, in our ways of working, in our capacities to, to work together, right, so, um, I don't know that I really say that a lot explicitly, I feel like I do a bit at the very end, but, but I think, I, yeah, I, I like, the, I appreciate that you sense the kind of hints that emerge at the end of each chapter that start to try to kind of open up I hope uh, sort of building on each other to kind of, you know, say what sort of possibilities does this allow? How can we now think differently now that we, you know, how does this help, right? And how does it intersect with other scholarship and other architects and other buildings and other ideas that can help us, you know, kind of think differently about the world that we face? Because uh, that's that's the urgency, right? The, I mean, it's it maybe goes without saying, but the kind of conceptual struggle, if you will, or the kind of epistemological challenge is the challenge uh, uh, at stake in, in, in thinking about, in, in my mind, and kind of thinking about climate change and architecture and more generally, you know, we, we have the tools, we have the technologies, the methods. This is also demonstrated, right? I mean, there's, it's just sort of almost kind of obvious in, in, in you know, the, I think there's 425 images or something like that, right? I mean, there's just this sort of mountain of evidence that says, you know, look at how dynamic this discussion has been. And then again, these codas are almost like, and this is just a slice of it, right? I mean, this is just, I'm just opening, I'm just peeking. You know, there's a whole world of discourse around architecture and climate that is to be excavated by, you know, myself and others, future scholars. I mean, this is, a, 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 again, a, a huge realm of, of, of a histor historical and historiographic analysis, right? Um, uh, uh, so to really celebrate that, right, and see see it as as a sort of yeah imperative to to kind of look through this, not only do the research, but to think about how these different imperatives and these different methods and these kind of questions of applied history and, and the relationship of historical knowledge to contemporary practices also opens up kind of different approaches to research, right? Not just in terms of kind of archives, but also method, of course. Uh, so that's a big part, you know, we discussed the, the, I share the PhD program at the University of Pennsylvania. That's, that's, you know, we talk a lot about method. We think a lot about how, how our architectural research methods uh, adjusting and thinking differently in relationship to, you know, the changing contours of, of the world that is, you know, that it's a part of. And, and again, the questions of racial equity and inequity and um, gendered spaces. And I mean, these are, uh, you know, the, the, the themes that we bring into the, to the discourse and, and also produce in, in students and research and, you know, in uh, exhibitions, et cetera, projects. Um, uh, uh, so trying, yeah, trying to find some solace in the, in the rich vein of possibility that, that's sort of endemic to uh, research, right? I mean, researching is such a practice of discovery. So um, uh, holding on to that in some fundamental way. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I really love how, you know, in the book, you you talk about, you know, the, you, your book is filled with tons of images and you talk about the power of these images to spur specific actions. And, you know, you've been talking in this podcast about how you yourself want your, your book and sort of the work that you do to kind of spur people towards particular kinds of actions that, you know, make us think a little bit more about discomfort as a way of being, not just comfort. Um, instead of, you know, a like what does acclimatizing mean for, for us right now? 
Um, and I realize I've taken up a lot of your time. So I just wanted to ask, um, you know, in closing, uh, what's next for you? And perhaps, you know, in writing this book, uh, I wanted to ask a little bit about not just what's next, but how this book has maybe changed, not just in terms of what content you know, but even kind of methodologically or, um, uh, you know, a, a way of thinking that may have sort of emerged out of this that you might be taking with you into your your future projects. Yeah, fabulous. And 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 again, thanks so much for this for this opportunity in general. It's been a been a great discussion. Um, um, and you know, and I think that it kind of also brings up threads uh, that we've been that we've been playing out. I mean, in many ways, um, you know, the book came out in July, I think, officially, right? Um, so so I'm mean, mm-hmm. really at a moment when you know of uh, sort of such kind of optimism and terror in terms of the kind of righteous unrest on the streets and the kind of panics of the pandemic and of course the you know uh, continuing demise of our democracy um and 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 so there's i think there's a you know there's a sense that you know as we've been again as we've been discussing that that part of what's on the table is to is to think about these issues um both in their kind of contemporary urgency but but in particular in relationship to Questions of racial justice and sort of climate justice broadly considered, uh, insofar you know, and, and teasing out some of those questions uh, vis-a-vis the Green New Deal, vis-a-vis other sorts of discourses in architecture and landscape, and uh, uh, amongst colleagues uh, near, near and far, and, and another sort of set of intersections around the pandemic, right? And, and so, which is to say that the kind of, uh, insofar as I've tried to kind of conceptualize the thermal interior as a space of politics, right? Um, that's 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 become increasingly um uh it's heating up i guess i would say right i mean there's there's a or pressurized or there, you know, there's a, even more kind of going on in there or at least uh, uh, uh there's opportunities to discuss uh, some of these issues in, in new and, and compelling and, and dynamic ways that i'm happy to have the chance to sort of embrace and, and work with so so i'm i'm doing a couple of projects that are you know thinking about um, you know, I won't, I won't get into them at, at, at too great of a length, but um, I'm, I'm writing a, a, a kind of small book on uh, the history and theory of the emergency exit that's um, kind of an attempt to, to see emergency exits as a kind of structural model. There's a brief, a brief article appeared on EFLUX some, some about a year and a half ago. Uh, but to kind of think about the emergency exit as a kind of structuring condition of the city, right? The, something that we can get out of, right? And, and, and also how that kind of becomes a structuring condition of capital and investment and risk analysis and sort of built environment more, more generally and a sort of model of, you know, how we kind of are frankly uh, relating to climate and pandemics and, and other sorts of, of sort of global cataclysms that we, you know, we, I mean, the virus, I'm sorry, the vaccine becomes this sort of emergency exit, right? We sort of assume and sometimes produce, right? Some escape route, um, uh, to some extent, of course, I don't want to, I'm not pretending, I don't certainly, yeah, we don't want to, I won't get into the whole details of the vaccine and how long it may take to be effective, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, the sort of uh, model for uh, contemporary uh, risk society, right, to, to play off of Ulrich Beck's, of course, famous, famous phrase, um, that's, that's very reliant on a, on a way out. And the challenge that presents to, the challenge that climate disruption presents to those conceptual frames. Um and it's, you know, I, I, I just spoke about it in that very sort of I was, I'm somewhat abstract, right, conceptual way, but it's really a book that's kind of documenting and kind of looking at these emergency exits and how they've been conceptualized and produced and designed and built. Um, I'm doing a, another project on stranded assets, which uh, looks at, you know, in a sense, a, this is a broader project that has an exhibition component, a pedagogical component um, uh, that tries to understand how we will kind of use um, you know, sealed curtain wall, you know, Seagram's Tower type of buildings uh, after the fall, right? After carbon is no longer socially viable, uh, which is to say today, but once you know, once that hits us finally, right? How can we, how can we, what, how will these buildings exist, right? So there's a kind of attempt to recover or, or see this. It's really a, a, indeed a space just to imagine these possible futures and to get into a sort of visual and mediatic dialogue with the kind of histories and, and stories and narratives and possible futures relative to energy and, and, and life and buildings, basically. Um, and then I'm also uh, a third book that's um, uh, called Thermal, Thermal Practice that's uh, more sort of interview-based and talking to architects and engineers and kind of just trying to understand 
uh, in more detail how that kind of thermal interior is conceptualized today as a kind of space for uh, climatic transformation, right? A space for sort of cultural transformation. So, um, uh, I don't know. I, I dare say a bit more of a sort of popular book, if you will, than rather than an academic object, um, scholarly object that will sort of bring you know my perspective and the knowledge of many of my colleagues and, and others, uh, uh, hopefully to a sort of broader broader reading public. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, lots lots of lots of irons in the fire, if you will. But you know, of course, all I've been doing lately is kind of managing the turmoil of um, Zoom teaching and uh, homeschooling, and I haven't done uh, anything of, of substance on any of those projects for a few months, but I'm looking forward to getting back to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah. sounds like you have a lot on your plate. Yes. Um, but yes, also with with, uh, with the pandemic, it does seem like everyone has, has much more on their plate or just has Indeed. to uh, adapt uh, much more, adapt much more than usual. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. And no, no, of course. Yes, it was such a pleasure. And, and, uh, I uh, really appreciate your engagement with the with the book and and the the invitation and thank you. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you so much. This was an incredibly fabulous discussion. Um, so thank you for taking the time to talk about your book with me and uh, this discussion of modern architecture and climate design before air conditioning by Daniel E. Barber, published by Princeton University Press in 2020 is brought to you by the New Books Network, an architecture channel of the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.